0: From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. There are countless stories of chefs, of apprenticeship, labor, and talent, and a rise through the ranks until the years of work bloom into the full flower of an owned restaurant. Then there is Eduardo, a.k.a. Lalo Garcia's story. A singular epic worthy of cinematic telling with a cruel twist that also reveals a lot about us and the two countries, Mexico and the U.S., that shaped Garcia. Journalist Laura Tillman writes his story in her book, The Migrant Chef.
1: So it helps to start at the beginning how I decided to write this book in the first place. When I met Lalo, I was looking to tell a story of a bunch of people who worked in a restaurant. That was sort of my first idea, was to tell the story of someone who's a dishwasher, someone who's an aspiring chef, um, someone who's a manager or waiter. And then I met Lalo, and it became clear that he was sort of living all of these lives at the same time. Like, he was the person who flies first class to eat and drink at a restaurant in some remote corner of the world. But he also inside of him is still very much the farm worker that he, he was as, as a child. And he was really wrestling with these contradictions. And I think that part of what's moving about that journey to me is it touches on a lot of things that are very specific to him, but that are also a little more universal, that all of us kind of are in this trap where we want more, We want to stay true to who we are, but we're also chasing success in different ways. That is one of the pieces of the story that I think feels just very human and real to me, and at the same time, very extraordinary because I really haven't met a lot of people who have truly lived all of those lives and truly had that insight that he does into both what's beautiful about something that's shiny but what's also kind of false about it at the same time.
0: Today, we're going to share Lalo's story. We'll hear from Laura, but also from Lalo, who's lived a life so big and so worthy of recognition and reflection that we're dedicating the whole show to it. So sit back. And sink into the life and times of Lalo Garcia
1: Lalo Garcia is the chef of the restaurant Maximo Bistro in Mexico City.
2: My name is Eduardo Garcia. I am a cook.
1: It's recently named one of the top hundred restaurants in the world
2: and along with my wife, uh, we are uh, head of the of the restaurant group group in Mexico City.
1: He is originally from. San Jose de las Pilas, Guanajuato, a very small village. And then as a child came to the U.S. to work as a migrant farm worker with his family, working the fields from Florida to Michigan.
2: What I remember the most about my village, it's nature, it's food, it's working, it's animals, everything to do with the earth. It's a very humble village. Most of the people that live in, in my village are now in the US. It's a beautiful place, but there is no uh, economic growth. It's just a farm. And most of it is just a farm that's not even enough to sustain a life.
1: So his parents' names were Guadalupe, Lupe, and Natalia. Uh, They both came from families where their main source of income was from farm work.
2: So one of the things that I loved about my village was the food. I can almost smell those moments. My mom's kitchen or my grandmother's kitchen was made with uh, adobe and bricks and everything was fire. So you can imagine the smell. Everything's smoked and everything is based on corn and and everything is what we harvest ourselves or fed animals that we slaughter for later to eat. So just imagine having a, a fresh tortilla, you know, in the morning before we we go to work in the fields or imagine those days where there was a feast and everybody got together and everybody pitched in with something that they brought from their houses. It's always, always something that they actually like grew themselves. So for me, is like at th- those moments, I didn't really quite understand that life was about eating and eating amazing. For me now, that's what keeps me going in the kitchen.
1: When he was two years old, they moved to the Estado de Mexico, which is kind of a suburb of Mexico City, to an area where a lot of people in Mexico were migrating to at the time in search of work. And then his father was going back and forth to the US working as a migrant farm worker, And, you know, really in the pursuit of trying to get his family ahead to earn more money than he'd be able to make in Mexico. And his mother was back home with four kids, raising them by herself. And then when Lalo was 10 years old, they made this decision to leave his sisters in Mexico and to go Lalo, his brother, and his parents to work as farm workers in the U.S., and, you know, I think it was it was a decision that a lot of families have made. Mexico has a very inflexible class system. There's not a lot of upward mobility in Mexico. So if you're from, you know, a poor rural family, your best hope a lot of the time is making this difficult journey to try to earn more, to try to find a better life for you and your
2: family. I didn't really quite... Knew my father very well up to that moment because he had migrated to the States since the 70s.
1: You know, this was a tradition essentially in his family that had been going on for generations by the time Lalo took part in it. Lalo's grandfather was part of the Bracero program, which was started during World War II to bring farm workers to the US from Mexico in the absence of workers in the US who had gone off to fight. In Europe, I think in the 70s and 80s, when his father made the choice to leave and then when Lalo joined them, it wasn't the time of the greatest amount of migration from the U.S. to Mexico. I think a lot of it was economic forces. There was a lot of economic instability at the, in the country at the time. You had this moment for a lot of rural people when perhaps in earlier years they were surviving off of the milpa, off of the system of agriculture where plants are intercropped. They were able to have kind of enough to survive. But with modern medicine, with the fact that people were living longer, with the fact that people had gone to the U.S. and come back and kind of seen that there were other things that they wanted to buy, there there was another quality of life that they wanted to pursue. I think part of what was driving these changes had to do with that, with that pursuit of You know, that little bit more income that might help your family to buy a car, to get the medical treatment that they needed, things like that.
2: I remember everything about going to the U.S. We are two sisters and one brother. And when me and my brother went to the U.S., my sisters didn't follow. They stayed in Mexico And my mother was very, very upset that they were going to stay. So the first time we were going to leave, we didn't because my mother couldn't do it. My mother had been a single mother now for about 14 years. And so she couldn't put herself or put the family uh, through that moment where they had to stay and we as kids, as boys would leave with my father. But eventually they made that decision It's like it's going to happen and you and your brother are going to come to the U.S. And the thing is, is like, you know most families that take their kids to the U.S. from a country like ours where education, it's really not a priority. And I'm not saying my father was a bad person. Actually, he was a a very loving father, but it's just the way they think. They think that by taking their kids to the U.S. to work in whatever in the fields, in this case, their economics is going to grow because there's four more hens to put in the fields. So the idea, I was nine years old. My my brother was seven. I remember the day we took the bus to Tijuana, like if it was yesterday, because those moments stay on your, on your brain forever. They never actually leave because those are big changes for a human. So we... Took a bus to Tijuana. I remember probably seventy percent of the of the bus ride. I remember when we were in Tijuana looking for a coyote that my father called Guero, El Guero. Uh, we looked for him in 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 different homes, and then finally when he found the coyote, me, my brother, and my mother crossed the. The border, I remember it was at night. I remember this big fence. They had a hole in the bottom and we crossed it and we walked all night with a bunch of people from from Mexico, from Central America. Once we got to the other side, my cousin, who was legal in the U.S., he picked us up and took us to his home in Los Angeles.
0: Coming up, From the fields to the kitchen, how Lalo Garcia went from a child migrant to the executive chef of one of Atlanta's top restaurants. Stay with us.
1: Introducing the KCRW donation car designed to be recycled this first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now
0: at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. We pick up Lalo Garcia's story on this side of the border, where he arrived on foot through a hole in the fence. He was the third generation in his family to make this journey, and at age nine began to work in the fields. Here's Laura Tillman.
1: So, the migrant lifestyle was incredibly difficult, I think, even for someone like Natalia, who had grown up in this rural family who had done very hard work had to you know fetch water for cooking and cleaning and drinking every day it was still a very psychologically taxing difficult lifestyle on the migrant route you know you're you're moving from place to place you're meeting people but you don't have any roots in their case they they weren't really staying with family or friends they didn't have any kind of foundation the kids were changing schools all of the time They were constantly looking for new places to live. Sometimes they had to stay in motels and waste all of this precious money that they were earning. They were kind of the bottom of the barrel in all of these situations. The work is very brutal. I mean, these are jobs that migrants come and do for a reason because not a lot of Americans want to squat and dig onions for 10 hours a day in the sun or... Pick oranges or strawberries. Also, the workers can be exploited very easily. You know, if you're undocumented and a farmer tells you that they're going to pay you X, but they pay you Y, you really don't have any recourse. So they were really at the whim of the people that they were working for. And I think that Lupe, Lalo's father, really tried to find people that he trusted, people who he felt were good employers who were reliable and that by the time he brought Lalo and his brother he he had kind of established some more dependable places to go. But even so, it was it was really difficult. You know, Lalo was a kid who for one reason or another really liked this work for the most part. People often describe him as a kid as being kind of hyperactive. And so when he was in these situations and he was kind of competing to get the most oranges or the most cucumbers or the most blueberries, he had this sort of competitive streak and he kind of enjoyed being the best, rising to
2: the top. So working in the fields in the US for me was normal. Like I, I thought that that was part of life, you know, because when I was in my village, it, just imagine like literally like going from a village to a country that's so different. I had never in my life seen like automobiles or even a plane or, or you know, things that I saw in, in the U.S. in the first, you know, year that I lived because we went from state to state. But working in the fields for me was normal. We woke up at five in the morning. We, we would get to the field depending on how far they were. Uh, from where we were living, it would be like, you know, six, seven in the morning and we would work uh, up until the sun went down or or up until we finished the job, depending on what we were picking. I imagine there are still kids in, in the U.S. that work the fields and that's how they live because they, they don't know anything else. Imagine living, you know, in a third world country where you basically have nothing and then... You go to a country where if you work, you maybe are able to to achieve something, you know, a bicycle or something like this that I never had in my life.
1: But when I spoke to his brother and sister, you know, Jaime, who, his brother who migrated with the family for many years, and then his sister, Maria, who later came for about a year and joined them doing this work. They'll both tell you, you know, there was nothing fun about it. They didn't enjoy it. They would have rather been in school. They would have rather been with their friends. His brother would have rather been able to join the soccer team at a school instead of leaving every two months. Lalo had kind of this unusual personality where he actually liked this work, but I don't want to give the impression that it's it's fun for most people.
2: Imagine I didn't know my father really well until I was nine. Maybe I saw him two or three times, and now— you get to live with a person you idolize because my mother was always, you know, telling us when we were in Mexico, like you need to, you know, like thank your father because he's sending us, you know, money to eat. So we always, or I always thought of him as like uh, 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 my hero. So imagine now I'm with him, you know. And one of the things I enjoy the most about working the fields is that you're outdoors. But what I enjoy the most was the the actual road trips that we took going from state to state going through places that I had never seen before you know to like the woodlands of Kentucky to uh Tennessee, Ohio living around religions that I didn't even know existed you know like uh, in Ohio our neighbors were Amish so for me those things were amazing like Being with people that I'd never seen before or or even knew existed, it was hard work. But at the same time, the happiest moment for me is that I was with my father.
1: Lalo always talked about those years with this kind of nostalgia that I found surprising. And maybe it shouldn't be because in a sense, it was part of the path that led him to where he is today. And so it's an important part of his story. He loved working with his father. He loved getting a chance to prove himself. He tells a story about his father who's working incredible hours, very, very difficult work, who gets up an hour earlier than they even have to so that he can make them flour tortillas every morning um, using a chopped off end of a broom handle as a rolling pin using whatever bowls and surfaces they have to make the dough, to roll these balls of dough that will eventually become flour tortillas, to cook them. He has these memories of the real love and care from his parents toward him and his brother. And there were a lot of moments that he recalls with a lot of fondness about this time And I think that one of my goals with this book was always to really tell Lalo's story. I've covered immigration for 15 years. You hear a lot of stories, and when you're covering things fast or you're covering things in an issue-driven way, sometimes there's a tendency to kind of tell the stories that you've already heard before. And with this, I really wanted to just stick with the uniqueness of Lalo's story and try to really draw out the things that makes it specific to him. And so I think that was one of those things that I would not have expected for someone to describe that life as happy. But to him, it was happy. ¶¶
2: This is a shape-up for migrant workers. The hawkers are chanting the going peace rate at the various fields. This is the way the humans who harvest the food for the best-fed people in the world get hired. One farmer looked at this and said, We used to own our slaves. Now we just rent them.
1: So this is actually from a CBS broadcast that took place in 1960, the day after Thanksgiving. And Edward R. Murrow is narrating the words of a farmer who says, we used to own our slaves, now we just rent them. So this has to do with this legacy of slavery. A lot of this work was done by enslaved people in the United States, And as slavery ended and those jobs were replaced, the conditions for farm workers in the U.S. have remained very poor. They have remained the primary industry in the United States where people are exploited, where they're working in conditions that are unregulated. In Lalo's day, you know, he was a child and he was a lot of the time working in conditions that were illegal. I mean, he should not have been working, but farm workers looked the other way. His family was often sprayed with insecticide on their way into the fields into Florida, insecticide that left scars on their skin. Sometimes Lalo's parents would put them underneath a blanket to try to protect them. And the idea was that, you know, they didn't want— insects to get into the orchards to get into the citrus groves and affect the crop. And so the message that this sent to Lalo was that the health of the oranges was more important than their own health. His father died of cancer in his 50s and it's one of many deaths that his family and their friends look at and they think Why are all of us dying so young? What was really in these pesticides? How safe were these conditions? Obviously, they were not, but there's really not a lot of accountability when it comes to these conditions in the United States. And I think part of that has to do with this legacy that this is still kind of this ugly inheritance of a much more horrific version of the same industry. So around age 14, 15, Lalo's family makes this move from this itinerant life of going from place to place to the Atlanta suburbs. And they're living in a town called Chambly, and his father is working at a country club um cutting the grass. It was a job that Lalo's father liked. He was treated well. And Lalo who had always enjoyed work more than school, starts looking for another job right away, and he starts working in kitchens. He starts washing dishes first, and then he starts actually cooking.
2: When I first started working in a kitchen, it was in 1993 in, uh, in Atlanta.
1: And, you know, he started working in a kitchen mainly because— he heard about a job through one of his cousins in a restaurant, not because he had this great dream of becoming a famous chef.
2: I actually, for me, it was like the same day where I crossed that big fence to another place in the world. It was actually the same thing. I went for working in the fields to going to a restaurant. There was like, it was a shock for me. So when I first started doing the job, I had, I knew nothing about the restaurant business. I had never even seen, I didn't even know that you could have 30 people in a kitchen cooking for people.
1: So Lalo started working at a restaurant called the Georgia Grill, which was a Southwest style restaurant named for Georgia O'Keefe. And he started out as a dishwasher, then he started to pick up extra work. And one of the people that I spoke to for the book was a man named Scott Adair, who was a recent culinary school graduate and was working side by side with Lalo and was just blown away. He gave him this nickname of Escafier Reincarnate. You know, if you are familiar with Escafier, he's one of the most famous chefs to have ever lived. He sort of revolutionized dining in France as a profession one of the things that Scott Adair recognized in him was that he kind of had it all. He was so fast. He was so good. He was such a hard worker. And then he had these hands, which, you know, it's kind of a cliche to talk about chefs and hands. But in my reporting, there were so many people who talked to me about Lalo's hands, that he has these incredible hands. And I think when you witness these hands, it's almost like, You think about a swimmer like Michael Phelps, who has this really long torso that helps him swim faster. Lalo has these really strong, dexterous hands that even when he was, you know, 14, 15 years old, people were looking at these hands and thinking, you know, Scott Adair said something to the effect of, I'll never surpass him. Even as old as I get, this 14-year-old is always going to be better at me because look at him. He's so fast. He's so good. He was sort of
2: relentless. So when I started uh, working in the kitchen and then doing the task that I was told to do, I literally did it as fast as I could, as neat as I could. And little by little, I started to kind of lie to myself and tell myself that I was actually one of them. The cooks that I worked around were people from France. They had talked about they had been in Italy for four years. They talked about they have been in a restaurant with stars, and I was like, "Stars? What do you mean stars? Like what? You know what is this?" When I started in the kitchen, I knew that I belong, but also I was kind of living a a double life, like mentally, like I was living a mental uh, a double life because. He, this is the actual moment where I, I started to have friends because I had never, ever had friends in my life.
1: And he kind of fell in with this crowd of kids who were committing robberies and also rebellious and breaking the law. And he wanted to be accepted by them and he wanted to be a part of that. And so he, he did start getting involved in these kind of minor crimes. He started breaking into cars to steal their stereos. He started selling drugs, and then he also, at one point, was part of a robbery of a liquor store that kind of went wrong and ended up in prison for aggravated assault.
2: When I was around 17, I was convicted of a a felony. I actually went to prison for four years, three years, and did some time in county jail. I did some things with my friends, and obviously... I wasn't proud of and I actually turned myself in because I wasn't proud of what we had done. This is the moment where I realized this is not who I am. So I went to to prison, I served my time and I was deported in 2001. When I was deported, I went to my village to see my grandfather. And at this moment, I thought this is life for me now. I go back to the country and I go back to the village where I once lived. But it wasn't like that. I went back to the U.S. almost immediately because my father was diagnosed with a cancer that uh, killed him years later. So I wanted to be with him. And so I crossed the border again by myself. I successfully crossed. I went to my family And I began to live the life that I thought that was going to be good for me and my family, which was to work in the restaurant business. And then finally, my father died in 2004 after battling gastrointestinal cancer that probably came from him working in the fields for so many years with all the agrochemicals that he was exposed to. But anyways, I started working in the kitchen. My father died, and in 2007, after being in the US for six, seven years, after being in a country that, where I didn't belong, after being in a place where people knew who I was, an ex-convict, I was deported. The immigration at at the moment, ICE, came to the restaurant where I worked and they came straight for me. They were already had papers to detain me.
1: And he had really built a career by that point. He was the head chef of a successful restaurant in the Atlanta area. He was really supported by the people that he was working for. They believed in his talent. He was building something. But I think that one of the things he'll tell you is that It was also really difficult to be living undocumented for those seven years in the United States that he lived in constant fear. He was always stressed out. He almost felt like the things that he was working for didn't really belong to him because he knew they could be taken away at any moment. So even though it was really difficult to come back to Mexico, there was also this kind of relief that was associated with that time.
2: And, uh... I've been in Mexico since 2007. I feel that I belong here.
0: To return to the United States, Lalo begins a life in Mexico. That's after this short break. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman, and today we bring you the story of Lalo Garcia, based on journalist Laura Tillman's book, The Migrant Chef. Before the break, Lalo had just been deported from the U.S. for the second time We pick up with Laura at the moment that he lands back in Mexico in 2007.
1: It's interesting because the terms of his second deportation are that he cannot come back to the U.S. If he comes back to the U.S. illegally again and he's caught, he's going to go to prison for a very long time. So Lalo has to begin his career again in Mexico.
2: When I came to Mexico or when I was uh, uh, deported to Mexico, the first two months of being here were probably some of the worst months I had ever lived through because I had no one. Up until this day, all my family lives in the US. I married in 2014 and I have now my wife's family. But before that, it was just me. I had no one. And so I became very depressed. But at one point I remember my mom in the U.S., When my mom uh, didn't really quite take on the U.S. very well. She actually became very ill. She lives on antidepressants from since the moment we left my sisters back in, in Mexico. She has always been a fighter, and I remember her, every time she, she felt like that, she would always tell herself, she would like out loudly tell herself, you can do it. You can do it. Get up. You can do it. Up until this moment, she still does that. And so I remember those days and I told myself, get up. You can do it. And that's when I realized I've been deported twice to the same place. Maybe life is telling me something. Maybe life is telling me that I belong here.
1: I think it was a really difficult moment for Lalo. There's a word called pocho, which literally means faded or wilted. That's used to refer to... People who have lived in the U.S. and come back to Mexico and, you know, according to this stereotype, don't really um, know their own culture or might be condescending toward Mexican culture and think the the U.S. is better.
2: The first place that I went to to look for a job was Los Cabos, because I wanted to I wanted to be around people who spoke English. And from what I was told, Los Cabos was it. But I went and I didn't land a job. Coming to Mexico City wasn't really a highlight for me. I actually, I am, remember, I am not from Mexico City. I am from Guanajuato. And I actually had heard horrible stories about people from Mexico City. So it wasn't really a place where I wanted to visit. I'd never been to Mexico City.
1: And it's interesting to see this landscape that he lands in. In the 1990s there was this moment of a lot of change in Mexico. There was a peso crisis, there was the ratification of the NAFTA. There was a lot happening around culture and politics, and one of the changes that was happening was around food. In in Mexico historically, Mexican food had not been considered to belong on the fine dining table, the white tablecloth in a fine dining restaurant. Usually you would see French, Italian, Spanish food in those spaces, sometimes Japanese food, but not really Mexican food, which if you think about it, it's something that you might expect in other parts of the world at that time. But in Mexico itself, that was also the case. And There were a group of chefs in the 90s, mostly women, who were kind of paving the way, and they were starting to experiment with putting together Mexican and European or Asian flavors on the table. One of the chefs that I write about in detail in the book is named Monica Patino, also a very famous Mexican chef who still has restaurants operating in Mexico City today, and She grew up in this family with both Mexican and European ancestry. And in her household growing up, it was very normal to have these kind of combinations where you would have a voulavant and you would have this French pastry that was stuffed in, you know, with rajas, poblano peppers, and you would have... Tacos filled with nopales, but you would drink them with champagne or you would have your chicharron as a snack in the evening with some Spanish almonds. And I think one of the things that comes through with Monica's story is that these kinds of experiments were always or these kind of combinations, I should say, were always happening in Mexican households. They were things that someone's cook who might be from Puebla, who might be indigenous, might be doing for a family of European ancestry. There's a lot of mestizaje in Mexico also, which is the word here for kind of the intermarriage between indigenous and European Mexicans. And so there's this way that these... These innovations or these experiments were always happening. This is also something I write about Natalia, you know, Lalo's mother, that she had her own experiments that she was making with food because they were migrants, because they were in these situations where they didn't have access to epazote or tomatillos. And so she was trying to kind of find those flavors and other ingredients she could find in the United States. So... This is kind of like the whole history of Mexican food post-conquest, really, is kind of this collaboration between different ideas. But in the 90s, for the first time, you were starting to see this in the fine dining setting. You know, these are really the spaces of negotiations. They're the spaces of cultural export. They're the spaces of tourism. And it's kind of sending a message both in Mexico and to the rest of the world about what Mexico is today, what is contemporary Mexico, and also whose voices were able to speak and be heard. And this all eventually leads to Lalo coming back to Mexico City. I think one of the things that's interesting about Lalo's return is that he found this kind of immediate success with his food which was combining French and Mexican flavors that even 10 years before was still very difficult you know for a chef like Monica Patino in the late 90s It was hard to get people on board with these ideas at times. Um, It was risky. And then Lalo arrives and there's already kind of this restaurant scene that's being built around that.
2: I started to Google, like, what is the best restaurant in Mexico? What is the best chef? And everywhere was Enrique Olvera. Everything on the Internet was Pujol Enrique Olvera. So I called Enrique Olvera. And he entered the phone actually that day. So it was my lucky day as well. And uh, I told him I was looking for a job and he's like, I need people like you. I kind of, I told him a a little bit about myself and he's like, I need people like you. Please come to an interview tomorrow. So here I was, an uncle of mine lives in the state of Mexico. And I told him, "Is like, can you please tell me how to get here and how, what bus I need to take and whatever. So he gave me all the tips on how to get to Mexico's top restaurant with Pujol. And I remember this day perfect because I got on the bus, I was ready for the interview. I was interviewed by his secretary and then by him. And I had this amazing feeling uh, in me. I didn't, remember anything that people had said about how bad the city was, how there was delinquents everywhere. I remember after the interview, it started to pour, like the the sky was falling up from the sky. And I love the rain. I love it. I was like, I love this. So I went inside this, this like a restaurant that was next door to Pujol while it was raining. And I sat at the bar to drink, have a glass of wine, and there was people there, and they were so nice, and, you know, asking me where I was from and uh, what I was doing there, and it was just so nice, and I was like, wow, I love this city. It's raining, people are nice, I haven't got mugged. I want to live here.
1: He goes to work for... Enrique Olvera, who is at the time the most important contemporary chef in Mexico, he has a restaurant called Puyol that's getting a lot of press and attention, and Lalo eventually becomes a chef de cuisine for Puyol, and then eventually launches his own restaurant called Maximo Bistro. When we return, the opening of Maximo
0: Bistro, a tiny restaurant with an outsized influence. It's the final act in our story. Next. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. If you've been to Mexico City in the last 10 years, there's a good chance someone told you to go eat at Maximo Bistro. In this final act, we hear from Chef Lalo and the journalist Laura Tillman about how this little restaurant came to be an international destination.
2: It took me a few years of being in Mexico to think that I could really open a restaurant. But what really changed this everything was my wife. Because I met Gabby working with Enrique Olvera.
1: Yeah, so Lalo goes to become the chef de cuisine at Puyol. Before that, he works briefly at a hotel that's also connected to Enrique Olvera called Condesa de Efe. And the manager there is a woman named Gabriela Lopez Cruz. And they get to know each other. At first, Lalo doesn't really seem to catch on that Gabby is pursuing him, that she's interested in him. Um, I think it's also this moment, right, where he's really in his own head. He's kind of had this difficult uh, stretch. And eventually they do end up together. And it does change everything. I think a lot of people who know Lalo and Gabby understand that Lalo's success is really intertwined with Gabby. That, of course, Lalo could have been a successful chef, but the way that he's been able to kind of execute a vision and create this restaurant that is so elegant, that is so much about the customer experience as well as the food and the kind of interconnection between those things
2: was Gabby. Part of the success of opening a restaurant is actually like managing it well. And so when I met my wife now, Gabby, she was working for en- for Enrique Olvera as well. We would always talk about us having a little restaurant of our own. And all the ideas that we have or we had were all the same. Like we just both wanted the same things. This is when I told myself, I'm not ready. We are ready to open a restaurant. And we wanted to have that little restaurant that became a big restaurant.
1: Maximo Bistro was this... Little corner bistro. It was in the Roma neighborhood, which is now this really happening part of Mexico City. But at the time they opened there, it was still kind of recovering from the 1985 earthquake.
2: When we started Maximo, we were doing bistro food with uh, Mexican ingredients, but like super French.
1: It was a little bit more of a straightforward menu of things like steak frites and ratatouille
2: um, or mussels. But we later realized that people in Mexico have a very good palate. And also we, we realized that more people from other countries were coming to the city and they actually wanted Mexican food.
1: Slowly, as Mexican food was added to the menu, Lalo kind of saw the reaction that it was one of the things that the customers responded to most.
2: And so I remember those days when I was a little kid, you know, the salsas and the moles that we ate in my village. So one day I had a customer that was like, "Um, you know, I came to Mexico to have Mexican food, but I see that you, you know, this isn't like a Mexican restaurant. And I was like, don't worry. Like I can make you Mexican food. And from that day on, I have like a a mixture of Mexican recipes with techniques from other countries like Italy and France and places like that.
1: I think the other thing that was important about it at the beginning was that this was really a farm to table restaurant. And that was partly, you know, Lalo, he had been this ...migrant in the industrialized fields of the United States, and then he had worked for this woman, Michelle Sedgwick, who started to teach him about this whole ethos of farm-to-table food in the U.S., and he brought that back, and he really made an effort to go beyond just the superficial of sustainability, but to really go to the vineyard where the grapes were being grown or, you know, see where these products were coming from, see how the workers were treated. And so part of the legacy of Maximo Bistro, I think is also bringing those ideas so forcefully to a restaurant in Mexico City.
2: When I worked in my, in my village, everything was natural. we, just work the land, and then the land basically gave us nutritional food without additives, no agrochemicals, no fertilizers. When I went to the U.S., it was another thing. I remember even us, as humans, before we enter the fields, we would get fumigated with I don't know what. I was a little kid. I thought it was part of the fun. But when I started working in the restaurant business, I realized that If you want to have a successful restaurant and you actually want to to brag about feeding people nutritional food, you have to know where it's coming from. So one of the things that we started to do when we opened Maximo is we wanted to use local ingredients. We wanted to use Mexican ingredients and we wanted to use natural ingredients for our dishes So now what we do and what we've done since we opened uh, Maximo is we only use ingredients that we know where they come from. We go to the farms and we go see how they're treating the animals, what they're feeding the animals. That's one of the biggest inspirations that we have for our menu for Maximo is knowing where all, all the ingredients come from.
1: You know, there is this full-throated voice that comes through in the food. In in international fine dining, I think there's kind of an idea of what a fine dining dish might look like. And it's probably something you put together with tweezers and nit- liquid nitrogen that maybe tells a story, but it tells a story in a really contrived way. And when you go to Maximo, you really just see food that's a reflection of the person cooking and what he loves and who he is. So... A lot of that is the product. Like, he loves mushrooms. And in mushroom season, you will see dish after dish on the menu of mushrooms. He loves a synchronizada, which is like a tortilla stuffed with meat and then um, on the outside there's a layer of cheese that's melted on the comal. A sincronizada is not a dish you might expect to see in one of the top 100 restaurants in the world but it is there and it is amazing and it's there because Lalo loves it and it's probably something that you'll love once you leave the restaurant too.
2: I do see Maximo as a political statement, and here's why. In Mexico, people who, who tend to have a little bit of money or come from a background of money tend to see people that don't have money as literally servants. So I didn't want to be that. We didn't want to be servants. We wanted to be a restaurant that kind of like invites you to their home. And you are our friend and we, you know, you can get up and, and get a plate if you want. I, I'm i not your servant. So it became political when we realized that most of those people didn't want to be in our house as guests. They wanted to be there as kind of like uh, you work for me and you do as I say and you do it like I want.
1: Back in 2013, there was an incident at Maximo which became kind of a national scandal in Mexico when a woman came by, she didn't have a reservation. She asked for a table. uh, She waited quite a long time for a table. And then there was kind of a misunderstanding where a table became available. She tried to pounce on it. She was told actually some diners from inside were moving outside so they could smoke. And she ended up Kind of throwing a, what some people would call a tantrum, calling up her father, who worked for the Consumer Protection Agency, actually directed the Consumer Protection Agency in Mexico to try to get Maximo shut down. And this ended up on the front pages of newspapers. This ended up in the New York Times and El País. And it also ended up resulting in the firing of several people at the Profeco Consumer Protection Agency, including the father of this woman who complained. It was a big moment for this restaurant that at the time had only been open for a little while to be thrust into the spotlight. In some ways it was really good for the restaurant because it showed Lalo and Gabby kind of standing up against corruption, and it also showed that this was a restaurant that everyone wanted to get a table at. In the years since they opened Maximo, they also started to build this restaurant group little by little. They opened a casual kind of brunch lunch spot called Lalo. They also opened a traditional kind of more classic French bistro and since then they've also become partners with a number of other chefs in their ventures. They're partners in a Singaporean restaurant called Makan. They're also partners in a new restaurant that took the space of the old Maximo. So they, they continue to grow and expand.
2: We started with four employees and then rapidly as the restaurant started to grow we started to hire people, but most of these people that we started to hire were people that eventually would have end up in the U.S., but because they were doing so well in our restaurant, they just stayed. And then we loved the idea of hiring more people from four employees. We would go to 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, you know, up of like Hundreds. So now we are a group of restaurants that we've started with ex employees of ours. It it has become like a dream, not only for me and my wife, but now for the people that work for us. It's kind of like a job creating a group. And what we love about it is more restaurateurs are doing the same thing. So in a way, not just us, but the whole restaurant industry in Mexico is an anti-immigration, I don't know, reform to the North. You know what my dream is, really? my dream is going back to the past especially in mexico like living in a village it's an amazing uh, uh, feeling because you literally like go back in time you know you from places like if even even like a small rural town in the us versus a, a village here in mexico it's like you're going back 50 100 years and for me that's amazing like i love that i love you know, going back to the past. But going back to a a village like mine where people know my success, it just seems like I wouldn't fit in anymore. Because people in villages, they really don't take a liking of people who come or have money. They usually would label them as the rich, el rico. The boss and i don't want to i don't want that feeling it's super sad like i i don't want to live you know in a mansion or live in like a style of life of like you know having enough to travel the world like I want to go back to my past I want to live in a farm to grow my own food to not have to worry about you know whether I am devastating, or I am part of climate change. You know, that's really always been my goal. And what I love it the most about it is is that me and my wife want the same things, you know, to go back to those days where where we work the land, even though she's never worked the land. but she loves that. so we, that's that's my that's my dream.
0: Lalo, I want to thank you so
2: much for being here today and for sharing
0: your story with Laura and with us.
2: Thank you for, for having me. Like I, I think some people in the world or in the U.S., this conversation would change their life because I know there's a lot of people in the U.S. and in the world that feel like it's the end of the world when life changes, but it's really not. That was Chef Eduardo Lalo Garcia
0: and journalist Laura Tillman. Today's episode was inspired by Laura's book, The Migrant Chef, The Life and Times of Lalo Garcia. If you want even more, Laura will be in conversation with Maite Gomez-Rajon at Now Serving Next Month on Thursday, October 12th. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Leryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush. Special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. For all of you entertainment folks listening, will one of you please buy the rights to Laura's book? I, for one, would love to see that movie. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Good Food.